T'was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the roof there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutter, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eye should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver, so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be Saint Nick. More rapid than eagles his course they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this is Goal Intentions. <laughs> Almost forgot. That was so good, Michael. I love Twas the Night Before Christmas. Of course, that was written by Clement Clark Moore. Clement Clark Clement Moore. Clark Moore. Clem Seymour. Yes. And um, and I just was I was like, hey, I have this idea because I want to hear you read it. You get to do the opening uh, Night Before Christmas. <laughs> I, love I love it. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yeah, I liked it. It's great. It's, it's a great. Um, it's a great shorter opening. We could have gone. True. Like otherwise, my my go to is like, you know, a Christmas Carol. But it takes yeah. a long time to read. We all did that, that last year. Like, we did a little bit. Though. Yeah, yeah. But this seemed. It takes about eight hours to read all of Christmas Carol, though. So that's a long cold open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've had some people ask, like, could we do like a radio? recording of it. It's like, maybe next year. I would like to sometime, but... Because we need a full year to get people together to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's a lot of work. Actors are hard to wrangle. It is hard. But it would be fun. Today's episode... What's our title? ...is titled Elf Knickers. <laughs> it's from the... It's from the David Sedaris. Yes, Sideris. it's from my favorite 
Christmas story. It's so good. Which is Santa Land Diaries by David Sedaris. So fucking Sedaris, good. Sedaris? Sedaris? I've always heard Sedaris. Sedaris, I yeah. Don't, I don't know. Um, and the, the full quote... <laughs> oh my god, yes. Is now it's about uh David Sedaris getting getting a job as an elf at Macy's Santa Wonderland. Yeah, back in the day when he was a struggling yes. writer and had to make ends meet any way he could. Right, right. So um <clears throat> the woman in charge of costuming assigned us our outfits and gave us a lecture on keeping things clean. She held up a calendar and said, Ladies, you know what this is. Use it. I have scraped enough blood out from the crotches of elf knickers to last me the rest of my life. And don't tell me I don't wear underpants. I'm a dancer. You're not a dancer. If you were a real dancer, you wouldn't be here. You're an elf, and you're going to wear panties like an elf. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's so funny. What is, oh, God, if you have not read or listened to the Santa Land Diaries. Yeah, I highly Treat recommend yourself. It's really, really listening funny. to it. You can get it. Audible has it. And David Sedaris Dave, is one of the few uh, one of the few authors who who's actually really good at reading his uh, own material. His own material aloud. Yeah. He's well, just got he's just got his... a voice and his delivery that just it works really well with dramatic takes on his stuff. Where he sings, and a Christmas Carol in the style of Billie Holiday, that will forever. Oh my God. Make me fall on the floor laughing. I, I cry laughing whenever I hear it. I haven't heard it. I oh need my to. gosh, I'm gonna make you listen to it. Oh my god, it. please. It's so good. It's so good. So what is what is far and away before we get into like what we're gonna do for this episode? What is far and away the worst job you've ever had during the holidays? Um, I mean anything retail. Yeah. People are awful. Parking is awful. You have to go there. Mm -hmm. The music is the same eight songs oh over and God. over and over and over again. Uh, people think that they're important oh my and God. more important than anyone else who's been in the store. And Holy it's like, shit. it is not my fault you're last minute and we no longer have any of the things that you're looking for. <laughs> uh, retail's hard. Retail's really, really hard. And I have a hard time shopping in stores during Christmas because of my retail experiences. So way. I just I buy everything just, I online. Hate, I don't do well in public with like crowds of people. I don't like And people. I just don't. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't like people. people. It's all the people. I like, I know this is such a cliche to say, but it's true. I like individuals, but you start getting those individuals into groups and I like them less and less. Like uh, my, my ability to hang out with someone is directly proportional to how many other people are there. Right. That's true. And I can't like if I'm in a crowd, like everyone just goes fucking nuts in a crowd. Like you yeah. lose brain cells. Right. I try like, to. For every person you're around, that's one less brain cell you have. Yeah. I, I don't know how that works, but it's science. I This is the thing that I have done for the past several years to keep myself in the goddamn Christmas spirit. And <laughs> it is <laughs> if I have to go to a store, if I'm going to Target, if I'm going. One of the things that always bugs me is all of the carts that people are like, I'm done with this. I know you're going to park here, but I'm going to go ahead and leave my shopping cart right in the middle of this parking lot and just leave. And so I always take the cart back to where it's supposed to go. Yeah. I don't leave the cart. And it's a conscious it's effort. Just, yeah. It's just common fucking decency. It is. But what it's is also it? really easy to just pop it up on the curb and leave it. You know, it's out of the way. But it's not out of the way for the poor schmuck that has to go out and get those. Yeah, so I think I it's easy for it people that have no fucking conscience. Like, that's what I, it's yeah. easy for people that are like, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I, you know, cause here's the thing, like it's fucking Christmas time. You're supposed to like be nice to people. That's mm -hmm. the whole point. Right. It's not it's just spirit. for mostly it's for most people though. It's like, this is supposed to be a special time of year. And, but they just stress about it and it brings out the worst. I worked yeah. in a bookstore 
for several Christmases in a row. And it's retail, but it's a special kind of retail hell because everyone needs help, like looking for what they're mm -hmm. trying to find. Because mm -hmm. the people that come into a bookstore at Christmas are people that just don't fucking read ever. They're only right. there under like they're only there under protest to buy something for their bookworm friend or family right. member. And so they come in and like, I'm looking for this book for my friend. Do you have the new Harry Potter book? And they're like, No, we have none of it left. I'm sorry. And they get so mad. Yeah. Why don't you just have it? And I'm like, Why? Why, why don't you shop earlier? Why do you think we don't have it? Do you yeah. think could it be because it's popular? We ran the fuck out. I'm so sorry <laughs> that we didn't know you were coming. Yeah. Um, it's just, and I've had people get into fist fights over shit. And I'm like, Jesus. it's a book. It's a book. It'll be here the day after Christmas, and you can come and get it then. But there's something. So Have you special. considered a gift card? Right. I don't uh, want no gift card. Right. People are just the worst. My uh, my experience <clears throat> growing up, my mom always was a last minute shopper. We'll say that. <laughs> and with last minute shopping, if you are one of those people or you have lived with those people, there comes quite a bit of stress about what to do, you know? And I guess some people can do the last minute shopping thing and just be like, oh, this will be fine. That'll be fine. And they nail it and it's easy and it's whatever. Cause there are people like that too. That is not my experience. <laughs> my experience has been, it is very stressful. You're up until early morning, Christmas day, wrapping presents, which is what I was doing. Oh <laughs> I was always God. wrapping presents. Oh, what a nightmare. And it was really, really stressful. And it took me, uh, a couple of years uh, to realize, a couple years, it took me a long time to realize that. I don't, I'm not like that. I shop way early. Yeah. Uh, I usually get on the Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I don't go out. I'm like, that's not, I'm not, that's Why would bullshit. you do that to yourself? Yeah. I love myself and it's self-care yeah. to not go shopping. My sister-in-law, is, is, she, she loves to go out. Yeah. And shop. <clears throat> she loves full contact body, like shopping. Like it's. Well, it's, and she's probably going to put on that football gear so she can go do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I love her to death, but I'm pretty sure she's also a nightmare for everyone that works behind the counter of a retail shop. Like, right. I'm sure she's she's the one. She's probably the neediest person uh, there. Yeah. Because that's just, it's her thing. I, I I love her to death. She's a great person. But man, when it comes to shopping, you could not pay me enough to be on the business end of her. Her <laughs> needs. Her needs. Right. Uh, but what I realized was that I buy things early. Cyber Monday, I get almost everything that week and it all comes in plenty of time and it's all mostly wrapped and I have a few things to finish up. Like we have everything set for the girls, just have a few more stocking stuffers coming in and I'm mm. done. My mom is freaking out currently because she's just now getting started and you have to pay <laughs> overnight delivery fees because she's too late. Right. And right. I had to, <clears throat> I, I realized I was holding on to that stress even though I was prepared. I was completely ready. There was no reason for me to be stressing. It was such a part of the season for me that I was still stressing about everything. And sure. it, a PTSD. couple of years ago, I just was like, I got to let that go and go. rest in the fact that I'm okay. Everything's fine. But man, you hold on to those, that stress. I have got. It doesn't have to be that way. Christmas used to be really depressing uh, for me because my, my growing up, my, my parents didn't get along very well. And you know, <laughs> now they got they, along famously. No, no, they, they don't. <laughs> but it's just I don't have to see it anymore because right. uh, I'm not around them. But at Christmas and, you know, they'd always spread. My dad hates Christmas. Like he just hates everything about it. He's not mm. he's he's very not but into your it. Your dad does love to hate things. He does. And so it makes him really happy. good at it. So but he's just like, ah, everything. he's such a curmudgeon. And my mother, she like she loves Christmas. So she would deck everything out and, and it was great, but it would always stress her out putting on the Christmas Eve dinner, which is tradition mm. in our family. So mm -hmm. everyone gets together on Christmas Eve, has dinner, opens presents from each other. And then Christmas morning, you wake up, go to church, come back home, or you go, you wake up, open your gifts from Santa, go to yes. church, come back and play with your gifts from Santa. 
and we never uh, did the church thing on we only did church on like major holidays yeah just just enough to get into heaven yeah we did them all the rest of the time so we didn't have to do it on holidays yeah we We can take off but christmas is always very stressful and my mom is very prepared too but she's very prepared because she's very anxious in general and that anxiety does not go away just because she's prepared right um and so like even though my mother has cooked the same meal for christmas eve dinner for god as long as i've been alive and she still every year stresses about it. Like she doesn't know what she's doing. And you're like, mom, you know, you could do this in your sleep. You right. really, you've got this. You still have this. But okay, but the turkey, what if I, But it's what like if this, that stress becomes this? part of It becomes a natural the tradition. response. The tradition is to be stressed. Yeah. And it's like, you can let go of that. So I hated it. Now that I'm, you know, old enough to kind of have more of a say in how I structure my day and my life. I'm like, oh, cool. We're just gonna, you know, we able, we're able to celebrate Christmas the way we want to. Uh, so we go and we hang out with my mom and my dad and my family for Christmas Eve. And it's much less stressful now because I'm not there all day. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not there in the week leading up to it. And I right. don't have to, you know. So it's like, oh, I just get to, I get the good parts. But I'm old right. enough now that I can edit out the bad parts. That's always At fun. my leisure. Yeah. And that's kind of fun. But it, it Christmas, man, I wish, I think, for me personally, I think what really adds to the stress is people feel like they have to get gifts for everybody. And yeah. I know it's a nice gesture, but it also puts so much pressure on your finances. It also mm-hmm. puts pressure on your time because you've got to find these gifts. You don't want to, because it's Christmas and there's nothing particularly special about giving someone a Christmas gift because it's like a cool, or you did this because you had to. Um, everyone feels like, well, then the gift, has, the gift has to be really special. Just so it kind of kind of rises above the cliche of here's your Christmas gift, which everyone feels, right? right. And so it's stre- everyone is a little stressed out about getting just the perfect gift for everyone. Did I think of everything? Did I get this person? Did I leave this out? And I'm like, man, if, every, if we just got rid of this sort of bullshit idea of like, you got to go out and buy Christmas gifts for mm-hmm. everybody. And like, how about we just get together and sip some hot cocoa, have a nice meal, uh, tell stories, and then everyone goes the fuck home. Right. You know, it, how much more enjoyable it will be, it would be if we treated, if it didn't have all the the bullshit accoutrement that, that yeah. late capitalism has all thrown of that, onto Christmas. All of that about, you know, the presents aren't really the important part. All of that being said, you did get me the perfect present. <laughs> right, right. And I feel like I got you the perfect present too. You did. I love giving gifts. I, I do really too. do. But um, and I, love, I certainly like getting them. But I also, <laughs> but I just feel like I wouldn't want anyone to be stressed out. I like getting gifts for people that I want to give gifts for. And Christmas yeah. time, you have to get a lot of gifts for people you just feel obligated to get gifts for. Like right. you really don't. If you had your druthers, there's a, probably about five people on your list that you wouldn't have that you'd prefer not to worry about, but you feel right. like you have to because like all their family. Blah, blah, blah. I want to hear about it if they don't. Exactly. Here's so the it's, other it, benefit kind of, com- of having it's a compulsion. <laughs> You're compelled to get Small gifts for people family. that you don't want to. Right. It's pretty easy. I have my mother and my brother and Jack yeah. and the girls, and that's Not it. Really. I have I have a fairly large family, uh, large enough. Like there's people. There's about at least eight people in my family that they expect gifts because I yeah. know because I know they're going to get me something. Right. And I'll be. I, but you uh, also you, know. you see your aunts and uncles and stuff like that. You know them. I know well. them well enough. Well, I, actually, I have no aunts and uncles. Oh. Um, yeah, my, my mother's they're sister, uh, they're all, they're all dead. Oh. <laughs> the so only, I guess that's my, my, par- my parents are the, are the, are the oldest living generations of, of Tatum's oh. now, uh, because both their, both grand, both sets of grandparents are passed away and their brothers and sisters are passed away. My mother's sister died when I was four. My father was an only child. So my mom and dad are the oldest, but mm-hmm. I have them. I have my brother, his, um, wife, my sister-in-law. So that's four gifts already. Then I have two nephews. Then I have, um... Um, 
excuse me. I'm blanking. Fuck. I see. I'm stressing it's out. Right. Who did it's I forget? Okay. Don't stress. No, but Don't stress. Uh, no. And then I have uh, my sister-in-law's sister and her husband and their kids, which are all very. We're all very tight knit, and so there's that's about ten people on my list. And I'm oh, like, yeah, no. yeah. So it's it's a lot. I don't want to. I don't know. I just wish we'd all get together and have like fun. But I think what's really interesting about working retail for Christmas, which I think everyone should do, although I don't wish it on my worst enemy. I think right. it's a very character building exercise. It's true. It kind of teaches you to kind of look at things and be like, wow, we're doing this wrong. Yes. We're doing this so fucking wrong. Yeah. But everyone just kind of gets through the holidays. And I don't think very many people enjoy it very much. Right. I think we could enjoy it if everyone just sat back and stopped making it about money and like who you have to get gifts for them. Like just spend who time gets with the people. best gift or if they're right. gonna love it enough. Right. And you know, I worry about my mom. She really wants the girls to love what they and it's like they're six oh, and nine. They're gonna love everything the minute they're looking at it. And then right. they see something else, they're gonna love that. Yep. Yep. Whether yep. or not they're gonna dance a jig if they when they open, I don't know. I think the moral which of a Christmas carol, which is my <clears throat> favorite Christmas story, is that let the rich people buy the gifts. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's so true. I was just thinking also, you're talking about like the the stress, the bodily stress that you're like, the PTSD triggers. For me, there's a there's a, there's a a piece of music called Sleigh Ride by Leroy Anderson, mm, which you've mm -hmm. heard, you hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. It was on loop at this bookstore I worked at for three oh Christmases. No. It was always, it wasn't the it only was song playing. It was designed to was make one, you go insane. There's even a whip cracking sound effect in there at some point, And all of us would like wince visibly <laughs> when we'd hear it. Cause we're like, yep, no, we feel it. We feel it, Mr. Yeah. Anderson, thank you. Da -da 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 snap da -da! and you'd see everyone walking around shelving Flinch. and helping cover yeah it was oh really fucking gosh. funny well to help everybody through this stressful time we thought we instead of doing the hysteria um we'd take another little break from that and do some classic we'd observe a classic english tradition of gathering and telling ghost stories that's right for christmas so that's, we've gathered that's a very british thing um, it's a very, it's a very just very European thing. I very European say. thing, yeah. It's very but the Brits uh, kind of perfected. Yeah, it. but it's it it's what happens happened here too. Mm -hmm. Get around and tell your tell your stories, and with, if you have family, you're telling your stories anyway. So we're doing that with and some I, Victorian yes. or not Victorian early 1920s stories. Yeah, yeah, different yeah. stories, different from early early era. Right, late late Victorian, early modern. Yeah. And it's really fun because I want to treat them like they're just submissions who've written in. I know, right? <laughs> We're going to do it like ghosticles. But think about it. Christmas is the perfect <clears throat> time. Christmas time is the perfect time to tell ghost stories because it's 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 the winter solstice. It's winter. It's the mm -hmm. dying of the year. It's, That's right. It's, it's the perfect time to think about one's mortality. And That's right. What comes after and how it looks and, you know, how it may manifest here. So ghost stories are kind of perfect. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite ghost stories in the English language, Turn of the Screw, which mm. only we could read because it's so, it's, it's too long. long. It's, it's, a, a it's a novella. And Henry James is difficult reading to do, um, to do audiobooks of because his style is whew, not a lot of room for breath, but um, <laughs> it start, it's framed. Uh, it's, it's a nesting story. So it's, it's framed by um, a bunch of people in an English manor house somewhere around Christmas telling ghost stories. And one of them's like, oh, I've got a good one. And that's that's the beginning <laughs> right. of the story. And it's perfect. That was when I first learned, like, the English tell ghost stories on Christmas? Mm. What the fuck? No one told me this. Yeah, then now we just tell ghost stories every time we get together. Mm -hmm. Every day is Christmas. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas, Christmas, here. Exactly. All right, so <laughs> let's get started. <laughs> what are you, what are you do reading? This. I'm reading. Who's, who's your submitter? The Crown Derby Plate by Marjorie Bowen. Ooh. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. 
Martha Pym said that she had never seen a ghost and that she would very much like to do so, particularly at Christmas, for you can laugh as you like. That is the correct time to see a ghost. I don't suppose you ever will, replied her cousin Mabel comfortably, while her cousin Clara shuddered and said that she hoped they would change the subject, for she disliked even to think of such things. Oh, Clara. <laughs> the three elderly, cheerful women sat round a big fire, cozy and content after a day of pleasant activities. Martha was the guest of the other two, who owned the handsome, convenient country house. She always came to spend her Christmas with the Wintons and found the leisurely country life delightful after the bustling round of London, for Martha managed an antique shop of the better sort and worked... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Gotta put in that little social it's barb. It's accurate. And worked extremely hard. She was, however, still full of zest for work or pleasure, though 60 years old, and looked backwards and forwards to a succession of delightful days. I like her. I want to be great. this woman. The other two, Mabel and Clara, led quieter but nonetheless agreeable lives. They had more money and fewer interests, but nevertheless enjoyed themselves very well. Talking of ghosts, said Mabel, I wonder how that old woman at Hartley's is getting on, for Hartley's, you know, is supposed to be haunted. Yes, I know, smiled Miss Pym, but all the years that we have known of the place, we have never heard anything definite, have we? No put in Clara, but there is that persistent rumor that the house is uncanny, and for myself, nothing would induce me to live there. It is certainly very lonely and dreary down there on the marshes, conceded Mabel, but as for the ghost, you never hear what it is even supposed to be. Well, who has taken it? asked Miss Pym, remembering Hartley's as very desolate indeed, and long shut up. A Miss Lafayne, an eccentric, I can say it. <laughs> you can do it, I believe I can in do you. it. A Miss Lafayne, an eccentric old creature. I think you met her here once, two years ago. I believe that I did, but I don't recall her at all. We have not seen her since Hartley's is so ungetatable, and she didn't seem to want visitors. She collects china, Martha, so you really ought to go and see her and talk shop. With the word China, some curious associations came into the mind of Martha Pym. She was silent while she strove to put them together, and after a second or two, they all fitted together into a very clear picture. She remembered that 30 years ago, yes, it must be 30 years ago, when, as a young woman, she had put all her capital into the antique business and had been staying with her cousins, her aunt, her aunt had then been alive, that she had driven across the marsh to Hartley's, where there was an auction sale. All the details of this she had completely forgotten, but she could recall quite clearly purchasing a set of gorgeous china, which was still one of her proud delights, a perfect set of crown derby, save that one plate was missing. How odd, she remarked, that this Miss Lafayne should collect China too, for it was at Hartley's that I purchased my deal, dear old derby service. I've never been able to match that plate. A plate was missing, I seem to remember, said Clara. Didn't they say it must be in the house somewhere and that it should be looked for? I believe they did, but of course I never heard any more, and that missing plate has annoyed me ever since. Who had Hartley's? An old connoisseur, Sir James Sewell. I believe he was some relation to this Miss Lafayne, but I don't know. 
I wonder if she has found the plate, mused Miss Pym. I expect she has turned out and ransacked the whole place. Why not trot over and ask, suggested Mabel. It's not much use to her if she has found it, one odd plate. Don't be silly, said Clara. Fancy going over the marshes this weather to ask about a plate missed all those years ago. I'm sure Martha wouldn't think of it. But Martha did think of it. She was rather fascinated by the idea how queer and pleasant it would be if, after all these years, nearly a lifetime, she should find the Crown Derby plate, the loss of which had always irked her. And this hope did not seem so altogether fantastical. It was quite likely that old Miss Lefane, poking about in the ancient house, had found the missing piece. And of course, if she had, being a fellow collector, she would be quite willing to part with it to complete the set. Her cousin endeavored to dissuade her. Miss Lefane, she declared, was a recluse, an odd creature who might greatly resent such a visit and such a request. Well, if she does, I can but come away again, smiled Miss Pym. I suppose she can't bite my head off, and I rather like meeting these curious types. We've got a love for old China in common, anyhow. It seems so silly to think of it, after all these years. A plate. A crown derby plate, corrected Miss Pym. It is certainly strange that I didn't think of it before, but now that I have got it into my head, I can't get it out. Besides, she added hopefully, I might see the ghost. So full, however, were the days with pleasant local engagements that Miss Pym had no immediate chance of putting her scheme into practice. But she did not relinquish it, and she asked several different people what they knew about Hartley's and Miss Lefane. And no one knew anything save that the house was supposed to be haunted and the owner, Cracky. Is there a story, asked Miss Pym, who associated ghosts with neat tales into which they fitted as exactly as nuts into shells? But she was always told, Oh no, there isn't a story. No one knows anything about the place. Don't know how the idea got about. Old Sewell was half crazy, I believe. He was buried in the garden and that gives the house a nasty name. Very unpleasant, said Martha Pym, undisturbed. This ghost seemed too elusive for her to track down. She would have to be content if she could recover the crown derby plate. For that, at least, she was determined to make a try, and also to satisfy that faint tingling of curiosity roused in her by this talk about Hartley's, and the remembrance of that day so long ago, when she had gone to the auction sale at the lonely old house. So, the first free afternoon, while Mabel and Clara were comfortably taking their afternoon repose, Martha Pym, who was of a more lively habit, got out her little governess cart and dashed away across the Essex Flats. She had taken minute directions with her, but she had soon lost her way. Under the wintry sky, which looked as gray and hard as metal, the marshes stretched bleakly to the horizon. The olive-brown broken reeds were harsh as scars on the saffron-tinted bogs, where the sluggish waters that rose so high in winter were filmed over with the first stillness of a frost. The air was cold, but not keen. Everything was damp. Faintest of mists blurred the black outlines of trees that rose stark from the ridges above the stagnant dikes. The flooded fields were haunted by blackbirds and whitebirds gulls and crows, whining above the long-ditch grass and wintry wastes. Miss Pym stopped the little horse and surveyed this spectral scene, which had a certain relish about it, 
to one sure to return to a homely village, a cheerful house, and good company. A withered and bleached old man, in color like the dun landscape, came along the road between the sparse alders. Miss Pym, buttoning up her coat, asked the way to Hartley as he passed her. He told her straight on, and she proceeded, straight indeed across the road that went with undeviating length across the marshes. Of course, thought Miss Pym, if you live in a place like this, you are bound to invent ghosts. The house sprang up suddenly on a knoll ringed with rotting trees, encompassed by an old brick wall that the perpetual damp had overrun with lichen, blue, green, white colors of decay. Hartley's, no doubt. There was no other residence of human being in sight in all the white expanse. Besides, she could remember it, surely, after all this time, the sharp rising out of the marsh, the colony of tall trees, but then fields and trees had been green and bright. There had been no water on the flats. It had been summertime. She certainly, thought Miss Pym, must be crazy to live here, and I rather doubt if I shall get my plate. She fastened up the good little horse by the garden gate, which stood negligently ajar, and entered. The garden itself was so neglected that it was quite surprising to see a trim appearance in the house. Curtains at the window and a polish on the brass door knocker, which must have been recently rubbed there, considering the taint and the sea damp which rusted and rotted everything. It was the square-built, substantial house with nothing wrong with it but the situation, Miss Pym decided, though it was not very attractive, being built of that drab plastered stone so popular a hundred years ago, with flat windows and door, while one side was gloomily shaded by a large evergreen tree of the cypress variety, which gave a blackish tinge to that portion of the garden. There was no pretense at flower beds, nor any manner of cultivation in the garden where a few rank weeds and straggling bushes matted together above the dead grass. On the enclosing wall, which appeared to have been built high as protection against the ceaseless winds that swung along the flats, were the remains of fruit trees, their crucified branches rotting under the great nails that held them up, looked like skeletons of those who had died in torment. Miss Pym took in those noxious details as she knocked firmly at the door. They did not depress her. She merely felt extremely sorry for anyone who could live in such a place. She noticed, at the far end of the garden, in the corner of the wall, a headstone showing above the sodden, colorless grass, and remembered what she had been told about the old antiquary being buried there in the grounds of Hartley's. As the knock had no effect, she stepped back and looked at the house. It was certainly inhabited, with those neat windows, white curtains, and drab blinds all pulled too precisely at the same level. And when she brought her glance back to the door, she saw that it had been opened, and that someone, considerably obscured by the darkness of the passage, was looking at her intently. Good afternoon, said Miss Pym cheerfully. I just thought that I would call to see Miss Lafane. It is Miss Lafane, isn't it? It's my house, was the querulous reply. Martha Pym had hardly expected to find any servants here, though the old lady must, she thought, work pretty hard to keep the house so clean and tidy as it appeared to be. Of course, she replied. May I come in? I'm Martha Pym, staying with the Wintons. I met you there. Do come in, was the faint reply. I get so few people to visit me. I'm really very lonely. 
I don't wonder, thought Miss Pym. But she had resolved to take no notice of any eccentricity on the part of her hostess, and so she entered the house with her usual agreeable candor and courtesy. The passage was badly lit, but she was able to get a fair idea of Miss Lafayne. Her first impression was that this poor creature was most dreadfully old, older than any human being had the right to be. Why, she felt young in comparison. So faded, feeble, and pallid was Miss Lafayne. She was also monstrously fat. Her gross, flaccid figure was shapeless, and she wore a badly cut full dress of no color at all, but stained with earth and damp where Miss Pym supposed she had been doing futile gardening. This gown was doubtless designed to disguise her stoutness, but had been so carelessly pulled about it that it only added to it, being rucked and rolled all over the place, as Miss Pym put it to herself. Another ridiculous touch about the appearance of the poor old lady was her short hair. Decrepit as she was, and lonely as she lived, she had actually had her scanty relics of white hair cropped round her shaking head. Dear me, dear me, she said in her thin treble voice, how very kind of you to come. I suppose you prefer the parlor. I generally sit in the garden. The garden? But not in this weather. I get used to the weather. You've no idea how used one gets to the weather. I suppose so, conceded Miss Pym doubtfully. You don't live here quite alone, do you? Quite alone, lately. I had a little company, but she was taken away. I'm sure I don't know where. I haven't been able to find a trace of her anywhere, replied the old lady peevishly. Some wretched companion that couldn't stick it, I suppose, thought Miss Pym. Well, I don't wonder, but someone ought to be here to look after her. They went into the parlor, which, the visitor was dismayed to see, was without a fire, but otherwise well kept. And there, on dozens of shelves, was a choice array of china at which Martha Pym's eyes glistened. Aha! cried Miss Lafayne. I see you've noticed my treasures. Don't you envy me? Don't you wish that you had some of those pieces? Martha Pym certainly did, and she looked eagerly and greedily round the walls, tables, and cabinets, while the old woman followed her with little thin squeals of pleasure. It was a beautiful little collection, most choicely and elegantly arranged, and Martha thought it marvelous that this feeble ancient creature should be able to keep it in such precise order as well as doing her own housework. Do you really do everything yourself here and live quite alone? she asked, and she shivered even in her thick coat and wished that Miss Lafayne's energy had risen to a fire, but then probably she lived in the kitchen, as these lonely eccentrics often did. There was someone, answered Miss Lafayne cunningly, but I had to send her away. I told you she's gone. I can't find her, and I am so glad. Of course, she said wistfully, it leaves me very lonely, but then I couldn't stand her impertinence any longer. She used to say that it was her house and her collection of china. Would you believe it? She used to try to chase me away from looking at my own things. How very disagreeable, said Miss Pym, wondering which of the two women had been crazy. But hadn't you better get someone else? Oh, no, was the jealous answer. I would rather be alone with my things. I daren't leave the house for fear someone takes them away. 
There was a dreadful time once when an auction sale was held here. Were you here then? asked Miss Pym. But indeed, she looked old enough to have been anywhere. Yes, of course, Miss Lafayne replied rather peevishly, and Miss Pym decided that she must be a relation of old Sir James Sewell. Clara and Mabel had been very foggy about it all. I was very busy hiding all the china, but one set they got, a crown derby tea service. With one plate missing, cried Martha Pym. I bought it, and you know I was wondering if you'd found it. I hid it, piped Miss Lafayne. Oh, you did, did you? Well, that's rather funny behavior. Why did you hide the stuff away instead of buying it? How could I buy what was mine? Old Sir James left it to you then? Asked Martha Pym, feeling very muddled. She bought a lot more, squeaked Miss Lafayne. But Martha Pym tried to keep her to the point. If you've got the plate, she insisted, you might let me have it. I'll pay quite handsomely. It would be so pleasant to have it after all these years. Money is no use to me, said Miss Lafayne mournfully. Not a bit of use. I can't leave the house or the garden. Well, you have to live, I suppose, replied Martha Pym cheerfully. And do you know, I'm afraid you are getting rather morbid and dull living here all alone. You really ought to have a fire. Why, it's just on Christmas and very damp. I haven't felt the cold for a long time, replied the other. She seated herself with a sigh on one of the horsehair chairs, and Miss Pym noticed with a start that her feet were covered only by a pair of white stockings. Oh, those nasty health fiends, thought Miss Pym. But she doesn't look too well for all that. So you don't think that you could let me have the plate? She asked briskly, walking up and down, for the dark, neat, clean parlor was very cold indeed, and she thought that she couldn't stand this much longer. And there seemed to be no sign of tea or anything pleasant and comfortable. She had really better go. I might let you have it, sighed Miss Lafayne since you've been so kind as to pay me a visit. After all, one plate isn't much use, is it? Of course not. I wonder you troubled to hide it. Well, I couldn't bear, wailed the other, to see the things go out of the house. Martha Pym couldn't stop to go into all of this. It was quite clear that the old lady was very eccentric indeed, and that nothing very much could be done with her. No wonder that she had dropped out of everything and that no one ever saw her or knew anything about her, though Miss Pym felt that some effort ought really to be made to save her from herself. Wouldn't you like a run in my little governess cart? She suggested. We might go to tea with the Wintons on the way back. They'd be delighted to see you, and I really think you do want taking out of yourself. I was taken out of myself some time ago, replied Miss Lafayne. I really was, and I couldn't leave my things, though, she added with a pathetic gratitude. It is very, very kind of you. Your things would be quite safe, I'm sure, said Martha Pym, humoring her. Who would ever come up here this hour of a winter's day? They do, oh, they do, and she might come back prying and nosing and saying that it was all hers, all my beautiful china, hers. Miss Lafayne squealed in her agitation, and rising up, ran round the wall, fingering with flaccid yellow hands the brilliant glossy pieces on the shelves. Well then, I'm afraid that I must go. They'll be expecting me, and it's quite a long ride. Perhaps some other time you'll come and see us? Oh, must you go? 
quavered Miss Lafayne dolefully. I do like a little company now and then, and I trusted you from the first. The others, when they do come, are always after my things, and I have to frighten them away. Frighten them away, replied Martha Pym. However do you do that? It doesn't seem difficult. People are so easily frightened, aren't they? Miss Pym suddenly remembered that Hartley's had the reputation of being haunted. Perhaps the queer old thing played on that. The lonely house with the grave in the garden was dreary enough around which to create a legend. I suppose you've never seen a ghost? She asked pleasantly. I'd rather like to see one, you know. There is no one here but myself, said Miss Lafayne. So you've never seen anything? I thought it must all be nonsense. Still, I do think it rather melancholy for you to live here all alone. Miss Lafayne sighed. Yes, it's very lonely. Do stay and talk to me a little longer. Her whistling voice dropped cunningly. And I'll give you the crown derby plate. Are you sure you've really got it? Miss Pym asked. I'll show you. Fat and waddling as she was, she seemed to move very lightly as she slipped in front of Miss Pym and conducted her from the room, going slowly up the stairs. Such a gross, odd figure in that clumsy dress with the fringe of white hair hanging on to her shoulders. The upstairs of the house was as neat as the parlor, everything well in its place, but there was no sign of occupancy. The beds were covered with dust sheets. There were no lamps or fires set. I suppose said Miss Pym to herself. She doesn't care to show me where she really lives. But as they passed from one room to another, she could not help saying, Where do you live, Miss Lafayne? Mostly in the garden, said the other. Miss Pym thought of those horrible health huts that some people indulged in. Well, sooner you than I, she replied cheerfully. In the most distant room of all, a dark, tiny closet, Miss Lafayne opened a deep cupboard and brought out a crown derby plate, which her guest received with a spasm of joy, for it was actually that missing from her cherished set. It's very good of you, she said in delight. Won't you take something for it or let me do something for you? You might come and see me again, replied Miss Lafayne wistfully. Oh, yes, of course, I should like to come and see you again. But now that she had got what she had really come for, the plate, Martha Pym wanted to be gone. It was really very dismal and depressing in the house, and she began to notice a fearful smell. The place had been shut up too long. There was something damp, rotting somewhere, in this horrid little dark closet, no doubt. I really must be going, she said hurriedly. Miss Lafayne turned as if to cling to her, but Martha Pym moved quickly away. Dear me, wailed the old lady, why are you in such haste? There's a smell, murmured Miss Pym rather faintly. She found herself hastening down the stairs with Miss Lafayne complaining behind her. How peculiar people are. She used to talk of a smell. Well, you must notice it yourself. Miss Pym was in the hall. The old woman had not followed her, but stood in the semi-darkness at the head of the stairs, a pale, shapeless figure. Martha Pym hated to be rude and ungrateful, but she could not stay another moment. She hurried away and was in her cart in a moment. Really? That smell? Goodbye, she called out with false cheerfulness. And thank you so much. There was no answer from the house.
Miss Pym drove on. She was rather upset and took another way than that by which she had come, a way that led past a little house raised above the marsh. She was glad to think that the poor old creature at Hartley's had such near neighbors, and she reined up the horse, dubious as to whether she should call someone and tell them that poor old Miss Lafayne really wanted a little looking after. Alone in a house like that, and plainly not quite right in her head. A young woman, attracted by the sound of the governess cart, came to the door of the house and seeing Miss Pym called out, asking if she wanted the keys of the house. What house? asked Miss Pym. Hartley's, mum. They don't put a board out, as no one is likely to pass, but it's to be sold. Miss Lafayne wants to sell it or let it. Oh, I've just been up to see her. Oh, no, mum. She's been away a year, abroad somewhere. Couldn't stand the place. It's been empty since then. I just run in every day and keep things tidy. Loquacious and curious, the young woman had come to the fence. Miss Pym had stopped her horse. Miss Lafayne is there now, she said. She must have just come back. She wasn't there this morning, mum. Tisn't likely she'd come either. Fair scared she was, mum. Fair chased away. Didn't dare move her china. Can't say I've noticed anything myself, but I never stay long. And there's a smell. Yes, murmured Martha Pym faintly. There's a smell. What, what chased her away? The young woman, even in that lonely place, lowered her voice. Well, as you aren't thinking of taking the place... She got an idea in her head that old Sir James, well, he couldn't bear to leave Hartley's mum. He's buried in the garden, and she thought he was after her, chasing round them bits of china. Oh, cried Miss Pym. Some of it used to be his. She found a lot stuffed away. He said they were to be left in Hartley's, but Miss Lafayne would have the things sold. I believe that's years ago. Yes, yes, said Miss Pym with a sick look. You don't know what he was like, do you? No, mum, but I've heard tell he was very stout and very old. I wonder who it was you saw up at Hartley's. Miss Pym took a crown derby plate from her bag. You might take that back when you go, she whispered. I shan't want it after all. Before the astonished young woman could answer, Miss Pym had darted off across the marsh. That short hair, that earth-stained robe, the white socks. I generally live in the garden. Miss Pym drove away, breakneck speed, frantically resolving to mention to no one that she had paid a visit to Hartley's, nor lightly again to bring up the subject of ghosts. She shook and shuddered in the damp, trying to get out of her clothes and her nostrils that indescribable smell. The end. <laughs> <laughs> The Crown Derby Plate by Marjorie Bowen Martha Pym said that she had never seen a ghost, and that she would very much like to do so, particularly at Christmas, for you can laugh as you like. That is the correct time to see a ghost. I don't suppose you ever will, replied her cousin Mabel comfortably, while her cousin Clara shuddered and said that she hoped they would change the subject, for she disliked even to think of such things. The three elderly, cheerful women sat around a big fire, cozy and content after a day of pleasant activities. Martha was the guest of the other two, who owned the handsome, convenient country house. 
She always came to spend her Christmas with the Wintons and found the leisurely country life delightful after the bustling round of London, for Martha managed an antique shop of the better sort and worked extremely hard. She was, however, still full of zest for work or pleasure, though sixty years old, and looked backwards and forwards to a succession of delightful days. Spooky. It's good. I like it's a twist, like because you you uh-huh. you know, like oh yeah. yeah, yeah, this bitch is a ghost, but then the bitch is a dude. I, I love, love it. it. I know. Oh, makes me want to go antiquing. I know. <laughs> Pick up a hitchhiker. <laughs> not really. Those. No, not really. That's a no. Don't do that. I don't it's do far that. safer to go antiquing. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. Um. Though I'm. I'm I sure. Agree. I'd like. Please send us your dangerous antiquing stories. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> something um, of uncommon <laughs> something of the right, uncommon variety right. that is such a <laughs> classic like tale in that you know something else is going on you know more mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. the the protagonist understands well, because you know it's a ghost story right that's exactly. what you signed up for but the yeah. protagonist doesn't and that's what makes a good ghost story in real life too you don't often know you're in the middle of one until afterwards afterwards and you're like, oh shit take this plate back that's a yeah <laughs> I would have taken the plate. I'd have taken the plate too. <laughs> oh my god, Man, I love it. It was such a oh, I really like that story. It's a good it story. Fun. I don't know, something about just women are really, really good at writing ghost stories. I think some of the best ghost stories in the English language are written by women. Thank you. I'm going to accept that for all women. Um, I think we're just used to being scared of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, men are just as fuck. Men are afraid of cats too. Come on, let's be real. Yeah, but we're afraid of real things, you know? (laughs) Men are afraid of like losing status. Okay. Right. They're afraid Um, of losing status, being rejected. Women are afraid of like rape and murder. I think, well, (laughs) true. Um, Not not, that men men can't be afraid of those. Not that men aren't, but but, but we're not allowed to, but we're not permitted to talk about it in the same way because it's considered unmanly to be afraid of that kind of thing. Um, but that's Except another thing. Here. I, think, I think women are traditionally more in a position to speak about ghosts and their experiences because they, men, see that kind of stuff as very feminine and so mm-hmm. don't partake. Well, I think, which is stupid. So fucking stupid. Yeah, so I think limiting. also, though, women are more in tune with their instincts because they have to be. You know, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. While the men were going out and killing shit to eat or, you know, protect their lands right. or whatever women were left alone and they had to trust their instincts that if something was coming by, that something was Mm. bad was going to happen. They're just, we've just generation after generation have had to be in tune more with the scary things that come and, and paying attention to those, you know, I guess so. And I guess it makes more sense too. men are also very, we're pack animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that women aren't, but I think men are in my own experience, at least men are more susceptible to, downplaying their intuition if they feel it goes against what the, the group, group is doing will accept they're like oh, i just i won't listen to that because that, that's stupid i'll sound stupid i don't want to be afraid of cat men men fear looking afraid right it's and women so are weird. more like let's all be afraid together let's all be afraid together because let's go there's to the something to be together. afraid of <laughs> let's go do this together we'll all be together and then no one gets murdered i mean think about it the, the great words of, of uh, franklin delano roosevelt was there's nothing to fear but fear itself and that's um, a great line, but very inaccurate. Yeah, it's not accurate <laughs> at all. There's plenty of things to be afraid of that aren't just fear itself. <laughs> There's nothing like, to like, fear but fear like itself. Spiders and, and spiders, and <laughs> murderers. Um, John Bon Jovi hair, things like that. 
very Things frightening. Like that. Very Ugh. frightening. But that's the thing about <laughs> ghost stories. I think. Um, no offense to John Bon Jovi. Uh, he can he can take it. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're up. I'm up. I just like this house. Uh, this house. This story. Right. It's called The House on the Cliff. Now. By W.J. Wintle. What I just want to. British name. It is. Wintle. Um, I want to say Wintle. that we found, <laughs> we found some, um, a list of some wintry oh, yeah, tell spooky them tales. Oh, yeah. Tell where you found it. And uh, I looked for ones that were um, public domain mm-hmm. so that we wouldn't get sued. <laughs> and Yeah, enough of that. In that, I know, right? I am done. Uh, I have a great lawyer, but I'd rather not. Thank you so much. Um, But the the funniest part to me was I read it and I was like, I'll read this one. He'll read that one. I never read the stories. I didn't know what they were. I sent Michael the link and he was like, you read this one. I'll read that one. (laughs) You read the the Derby plate uh and I'll read the house on the cliff. She's like, that's what I picked for us too. And I just by the titles. And it was really funny to me that. Right. Right. Yeah. So it was pretty funny. This is a good, this is a classic, this is a classic spooky story told from a very male perspective. And it's, um, it's also interesting because it's it's a male perspective and that it's a male putting together another male's experience based on the clues that are left behind after an incident. An incident. Uh, but it's a good Wonderful. story. It's very creepy. It's got all the it's got all the great classic outward trappings, and it's written well enough to keep from being cliche. All right, let's do it's it. It's also very creepy for anyone that's ever been out to a cabin in the middle of fucking nowhere. Why would you do that? Because I want to have this story. Oh, that's fair. The house on the cliff by W.J. Wintle. It all came about through Cyril being too clever by half. He fell into the common mistake of supposing that a mysterious something in his inner consciousness, which he called intuition, was a sounder guide to conduct than the general common sense of the race. He fancied that the best way to get away from the worries of life was to get away somewhere by himself, and this is just where he made the mistake. The greatest of all worries is oneself. At any rate, it was so in Cyril's case. And just then, he really believed that he had ground for worry. What it was does not concern our story, so we need not stay to speculate about it. But it was something that required treatment, according to Cyril. And the treatment that it required was to get away from things. He had tried the British Museum reading room in the off-season, when everyone is away except the lady who writes the Riviera News for the Upper Ten, and the man who has found out how to square the circle. He had tried a course of university extension lectures on the multiplication of the ego, and he had tried salmon fishing in the lower reaches of the Thames, but he couldn't get away from his worry. Then a brilliant idea struck him. He was half inclined to resent the abruptness with which it struck him, for anything that savored of familiarity was especially offensive in his present mood. But the idea did not mean to be shook off. It meant to stick, and he was bound to admit that the idea was not such a bad one after all. It was worth thinking about, and to think about it was to act on it. It was this... A friend of his had built a kind of cottage on a lonely cliff as a sort of retreat for writing his novels. It was a very retired spot, far away from everything except the sea. It was in private grounds, and its occupant could be as free from visitors as he wished. As it happened, he had seen in that morning's post that his friend was passing through town and was stopping at the Lanham. Cyril took up the telephone receiver. That you, Howard? Hey, how do you do? Uh, No, feeling a bit limp, you know. Nerves a bit jumpy. Want to rest, I suppose. I say, old man... If you're not doing anything with that shanty of yours on the cliff, may I roost there for a week or two? What's that? Going to pull it down? Haunted? Rats. I'm not afraid of spooks. 
Yes, thanks. I'll order in a supply of stuff to do for myself. Thanks. No need to trouble your people at all. Thanks awfully, old chap. It's really very good of you. So the thing was settled. And next day, a long railway trip, followed by what seemed an even longer journey by road, took Cyril to the house on the cliff. It was certainly as lonely as could well be wished. Five miles from the nearest town, or rather village, a good mile from the high road, with a private estate whose house was rarely occupied, and hidden away behind masses of firs and bramble, with bracken more than knee-deep, it was an ideal place for the man who wanted to get away from things. The situation, apart from its loneliness, was simply gorgeous. The house stood almost on the edge of a lofty limestone cliff, which fell a sheer hundred feet without a break to the waves that beat about its base. The cliff stood out like a miniature headland, beside a little bay bestrewn with vast boulders round which the long oarweed clung and twined like ever-writhing water-snakes as the tides ebbed and flowed. All around the cliffs were pierced by caves that the waves had worn out of the ancient rocks by their careless surging, while overhead hung clinging masses of samphir and other green things. Looking out to sea, an endless waste of waters met the eye, broken for a moment by a rocky island that showed upon the horizon on clear days, and near in by some jagged rocks that rose above the surface in all but the highest tides and threatened the unwary mariner with swift destruction. On three sides lay the sea, while the fourth looked landwards and, as we have seen, showed a tangle of wild growth closed in behind dense trees and rising hills. No house could be seen, nor any sign of human life, and the path that led to the cliff was hard to find, so closely was it overgrown and encroached upon by the brushes and bracken. Cyril stood on the edge of the cliff and congratulated himself. He had managed to get away from things at last. There would be no interruption here. By dint of vigorous and persistent telegraphing the day before, an adequate supply of foodstuffs and other needful things had been sent up to the cliff from the town and left in heaped confusion in the little porch. He liked roughing it. He could do simple cooking. He was not likely to find the need of servants. So he looked around him, with unmixed satisfaction. The house on the cliff could hardly be called a house in any strict sense of the term, nor was it exactly a summer house or arbor. It was a simple wooden structure of one story, consisting of two small rooms for living and sleeping, and a sort of antechamber containing an oil stove and a few cooking utensils. The entrance porch was at the back, and the front faced the sea, the two windows looking out from a shallow veranda. The furniture, too, was of the simplest, the floors were innocent of carpet and the walls of pictures, and the absence of anyone to intrude made blinds and window curtains unnecessary. Cyril stood there as the sun sank down in a bed of opal gray flushed with purple sapphire, and long flashing feathers of ruby played across the drowsy waves. A passing boatman saw him from the distance outlined against the sky and wondered who it could be, and that was the last time that any human eye saw him alive. What happened at the house on the cliff, and how the horror came until it What happened at the house on the cliff, and how the horror came and grew until it ended in appalling disaster, no man knows with any certainty now. Cyril's lips are silent forever, and the thing that watched and waited has done its ruthless will and perhaps has ceased from troubling. All that we have is a disconnected collection of brief notes written on loose half sheets of notepaper. They were no doubt written in the order of the occurrences, but when found, the wind had blown them about the floor, and it was impossible to do more than guess at the intended sequence. We can only put them together in what seems the most probable order, and weave a consequent story as best we may. It would appear that as Cyril stood there and watched the sunset, his thoughts went back to his telephone conversation with the owner of the place, who had said something about intending to pull the place down because it was haunted. 
Cyril prided himself on the possession of sound common sense. Without being particularly skeptical, he was by no means credulous. He required evidence before he believed anything improbable, and the evidence for the occult struck him as weak in the extreme. Nor was he at all imaginative or fanciful. He had good control over his nerves, although he had admitted to Howard that they were a bit jumpy at the moment. So his features deepened into a broad smile as he remembered the conversation. Spooks, indeed. Queer thing that a sensible fellow like Howard should take any notice of such tales. Rats, no doubt, or perhaps other wild things creeping about the place when all is quiet and making small, ghostly noises. But to put the thing down to spooks was a trifle too absurd, and Cyril laughed aloud. Then he started suddenly and looked behind him. What a curious echo. He could have sworn that someone laughed. But among the rocks and cliffs one expects echoes, so it was only natural that there should be one. But somehow there was something queer about this echo. In an ordinary echo one gets a repetition of the sound, a little modified, either sharpened or softened by the nature of the reflecting surface from which the sound is thrown back. But it is the same sound. There is no originality about an echo. And that is where Cyril was puzzled and a trifle startled. This echo was different. There was a suggestion of malignancy about it, and it certainly not been in his laughter. It made him pause for a moment and frown, and sanity reasserted itself, and he brushed the thought aside as absurd. But as he did so, surely someone laughed. It was less audible this time, but more unpleasant. It resembled the low chuckling of an ignoble mind that scores over a higher one. It was distinctly curious and a little annoying. Cyril hoped his nerves were not going to play tricks on him. Then he deliberately put the thing out of his mind and refused to think about it. He sat down on the short turf and gazed out to sea for some minutes. The sunset gray was now deepening into purple, and a long bank of cloud was gathering to the southwards. A slight breeze was rising, and the bushes behind him were whispering the secrets of the falling night. Then Cyril again looked behind him, with a vague sense of disquiet. Nothing had happened, but he had that curious suspicion of being watched that sometimes comes to one in a crowded room or street. He turned and looked fixedly at the bushes and bracken for some minutes. There was nothing to be seen, though he knew that probably many eyes of furtive wild things were watching him curiously and timidly. But it was not of these that he thought. He was vaguely aware of a thing that was watching and biding its time, a thing that meant mischief of a sort that would not stand thinking about. Cyril found himself waiting for the thing to reveal its presence. A moment later he took himself firmly in hand, this sort of thing would not do. He had read all about it in books of so-called ghost stories, and he understood the psychology of the nonsense. He pulled himself together and went into the house. Here he found occupation for the next hour in unpacking the supply of foodstuffs that lay in the porch and stowing them away. Then his small supply of books had to be looked out, writing materials arranged on one of the tables, the bedroom put in order for the night. By this time his odd nervousness had passed off, and he turned in to bed at an unusually early hour and in the best of spirits. He slept well, as he generally did, and was only once disturbed by something that sounded like scratching around the walls of the house. No doubt a rat, or possibly a rabbit. He had noticed that there were plenty of them about. But just as he was going to sleep again, an odd thing happened. The moon was shining in through the window to which his back was turned, and he noticed that while part of the room was in bright light, part seemed to be in shadow. It was as if a blind were partly drawn across the window. He turned drowsily in bed to look at the window, when the shadow suddenly vanished. 
This was rather startling, for it certainly seemed as if someone had been looking in through the window. Cyril sprang out of bed and ran to the window. There was no one there, nor could anyone be seen when he went to the door immediately afterwards. Not a soul was stirring except a few rabbits that bolted at the sight of him. He could only put the whole thing down to fancy when half awake, for it was just possible, but hardly probable, that some wandering tramp found his way to the place. Anyway, it was of no use to think any more about it, and Cyril went back to bed and slept soundly till morning. Next morning he rose in high spirits and had evidently forgotten the small disquieting incidents of the previous evening. But among his notes is an entry that seems to belong to this day and is significant in view of what happened afterwards. He bathed in the bay, climbing down the steep cliffs with the aid of a rope that had evidently been fixed there by Howard for that purpose. He was a fairly strong swimmer, but did not go far out as the currents were a little puzzling. He was doing some quiet breaststrokes in the deep channel that lay close in under the cliff opposite the house when it happened. He suddenly sank some inches. It was exactly as if someone had laid a heavy hand between his shoulders and pushed him down. He righted himself instantly and turned on his back, and just as he did so, a shadow seemed to vanish from above him. It did not float away as a cloud might have done, nor did it melt away, but it just ceased to be there. And at the time, he seemed to hear some laughing in the distance. It certainly was very odd. The rest of the day seems to have passed without event until the evening. It must have been very soon after sunset when Cyril, who had been sitting in the shade of a rock and reading a book, rose to go in. As he did so, he happened to glance up and was just in time to see something vanish behind the rock. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he was just too late to see it. He had that strange impression that something certainly was there, but was gone before his eyes had time to focus themselves on it. Cyril dashed round the rock and found nothing. Yet the distance to the nearest bushes was sufficient to have prevented the intruder from taking cover in the short space of time. And then he was conscious of the faintest echo of laughter somewhere close at hand, and once more came the strong impression of being watched by something that was hostile. But when he went into the house, he encountered a distinctly unpleasant shock. Before going out, he had been writing at a table placed before the window, and he distinctly remembered leaving a copy of Montaigne open upon it. The table was now pushed back to the wall, and the book was lying on the floor. But the thing that most alarmed him was the discovery of a sheet of paper on which he had been making a few notes. This was also lying on the floor, but the sinister thing was the presence of a footprint on it. The print was very faint, and rather suggested in appearance a slight burn or scorching than soiling. It was not easy to make out, for it was incomplete, the sheet being too small to take it all. At a glance it could be seen that it was not made by human foot or hand, neither was it at all like the footprint of a dog or any other familiar animal. It exactly resembled one half of the impression that would be made by the foot of a bird, such as a barn door fowl. But what bird could have a foot quite eight inches across? And what kind of bird would scorch rather than soil the paper on which it happened to step? Cyril did not lose control of himself. He saw that everything depended on self-control if he was to rid himself of this pestilent obsession. He brought common sense to bear on the situation and demonstrated to himself that the evidence was faulty at all points and clearly showed that the phenomena were purely subjective. It was a little difficult to get over the footprint, but he pointed out to himself that the marks were very vague and might be caused in various ways apart from the impression of any foot at all. As to the removal of the table, his memory must have played a trick on him. 
Clearly, he must have moved it before he went out, but forgotten about it afterwards. Anything was better than an explanation that would not bear thinking about. But the events of the night did not tend to reassure him. Three times he was roused by a sound close beside his bed, which could only be described as a sound of beating wings against the walls, alternated by sharp raps and a sound of scratching. And on one of these occasions, when the moon was shining through the window, he was conscious of a thing that watched but vanished when he looked up. In the morning he found that the door, which he was sure he had bolted when going to bed, was standing slightly ajar. The worst thing of all was an increasing sense that the thing that watched was somehow getting closer. The net of evil seemed to be gathering around him, and it was only a question of time how soon it would enfold him. And then what would happen? When he went out to bathe before breakfast, he had a narrow escape. He was about to descend the cliff as before with the aid of the rope, when he noticed just in time that this had been partly untied, so that when he put his weight on it, the knot would run through, and he would be sent whirling down to break his bones on the rocks far below. It was with a grim face that Cyril retied the knot before climbing down, but he looked still more grim a moment later, when a mass of rock that had been nicely poised on a ledge fell and missed him by a few inches. This time he took care not to go out of his depth, and he kept clear of the overhanging cliffs, but again he thought he caught the sight of something peering over a rock at him, which vanished when he looked that way. Several times during the day he was haunted by this threatening danger, and the thing that was biding its time was evidently gathering strength. He had an idea that the final attack was not very far off now. In fact, he made up his mind to leave the place next day. But it was waiting for the next day that was to cost him his life. The last thing that his notes record seems to have happened during the afternoon of this day. He was sitting in a deck chair reading a book when he saw out of the corner of his eye something like a great wing rise above a rock on the left at a little distance. It seemed to stretch itself and then sink down as if the bird were resting behind the rock. It had just the appearance of a raven's wing, but no bird of such size was ever seen by human eye. Cyril did not see it quite clearly. He was looking at his book without paying any great attention to it, and he saw the wing indirectly, and it was slightly out of focus. When he looked directly at the rock, there was nothing unusual to be seen. He got up and went to the place. No trace of anything like a bird was to be seen, but behind the rock was a cave which opened on a rock platform facing the sea. He remembered having heard that human remains had been found there, and that the cave was supposed to have been a rock shelter in prehistoric days. Then he noticed that in one place the earth seemed to have been disturbed very recently, apparently only a few days before. There was a strong, musky smell about the place, quite unlike anything that he'd ever smelt before, and again came that strange sense of something that was watching and waiting its chance. The gloom of the cave seemed to be something not merely unnatural, but even immoral. That is all we shall ever know of the horror through which Cyril was doomed to pass. He evidently scribbled his note about the cave on his return, and the rest is silence. Late in the afternoon of the next day, a fisherman passing in his boat noticed something unusual on the rocks below the cliff and put in to see what it was. There he found all that was left of poor Cyril, horribly mangled and broken. There was not a whole bone in his body, and the mangling could not be accounted for by a fall from the cliff. His clothes were torn into ribbons, and on his chest and back were fearful rents that appeared to have been made by the claws of a gigantic... Oh, God damn it! <laughs> 
His clothes were torn to ribbons, and on his chest and back were fearful rents that appeared to have been made by the claws of some gigantic bird of prey. But what bird has feet eight inches across, and only feet of those dimensions could have made such wounds? When they came to examine the house, they found evidence of a mighty struggle. Most of the furniture was overturned, and some of it was smashed to splinters. A bag of flour had been thrown down and burst open, and thus several footprints were recorded. Those of Cyril were easily recognized, for he was wearing boots of a peculiar shape, and the other footprints were those of a bird, and the bird's footprints were eight inches across. The end. That was a great reading, Michael. Thank you. I, I'm, I've loved that story for a long time, and it's cool to get to read it. It's just such a, it's got all the classic trappings That's of true. a haunted house story. Does it, um, it's so fresh in your memory, isn't it? Because we did it several <laughs> days ago. Uh, here's another funny story. Uh, when we recorded that last part, it got everything that Michael said um, up into our very closing moment and our discussion about the story. But it did not record me at all. Weird. So Weird. it's... Why does the ghost hate you? It doesn't... I don't understand. I don't think it hates me. I think that that's very judgmental and it's assuming a lot. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I'm just saying, it's like, it's your recording disappears, mine don't. Well, I'm, I'm also sure the last... Mine will be the next to go. This is what I actually think happened. It's the last <laughs> file was me. And so... Uh, I think I ran out of memory and it just didn't accept that last file. I'm just going to assume that's how it works. So Matt was like, uh, where are you in the last part? I was like, what? And so <laughs> it goes up tomorrow. And so I called Michael. He is on my speakerphone right now. <laughs> that's how we're talking. <laughs> Just have, I'm, I'm saying we should have just like left it as is and like just like written something on the website about like yeah Jimmy disappeared and there's nothing but like a giant bird footprint. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Jamie's gone. You know, a lot of people would really be comforted by that, but those people can suck my dick. Is that inappropriate? Is that wrong? Uh, <laughs> but either way, we hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Relaxing Christmas. Yes. Don't have to subject yourself to anything you don't want to fucking do. Let's do what you want. Do what you want. And if you don't want to do what you want, then do that. It's what you want. Yes. It's deep. It got meta. I don't know if that's what meta is, but it got that way. Take care of your mental health. That's right. This holiday season, it's important. Right, and and remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep with the lights on. It's so weird with you on the phone. Do over the phone, Jamie. Let's try one more. Okay, okay, and remember, it's okay to sleep with the lights on. One more time. One more time. We could do it. We could do it. And remember. It's okay to say. <laughs> Damn it. We had it. We had it. All right. I'm going to say and remember, and then you start, and I'll pick it up from you. Okay. okay. <laughs> now I'm going to say and remember, and then I'll pick it up from you. Okay. Oh, my God. Here we go. All right. And remember, it's, it's okay to sleep with the lights on. We did it. <laughs>